Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 135, Edwin, What Goes Around Comes Around. Now that's something I've heard my entire life. When I was younger and picked on at my school, my father would sometimes say to me, don't worry, Jamie, what goes around comes around. The problem with that bit of advice is that it requires a certain sense of fairness in the world that isn't always there. Not to mention a tremendous amount of patience that is in short supply when you're a small, awkward kid being picked on and simply want some sort of justice. But sometimes it does happen. Sometimes what goes around does come around. Okay, so why am I talking about this? Well, Let's have a very quick review of what's happened with Edwin. True, he had a rough start, since he first appeared in our story while he was on the run because Aethelfrith of Bernicia had nicked the throne of Deira and was hunting down Edwin and his entire family. Now, the sources are silent on his involvement on Aethelfrith's conquest of Deira, and some have suggested that Edwin might have been complicit in a coup. And basically, that coup didn't go the way he had hoped. But whatever the case, Edwin was on the run when he appeared in our story and spent his early years going from kingdom to kingdom, seeking refuge while his family was being wiped out. And the kingdoms that offered him shelter found themselves embroiled in war more often than not. While on the run, he married Quenberg, a princess of Mercia, and he had two sons with her. He was also sheltered by the king of Gwyneth and was probably the foster brother of Capwathlin of Gwyneth who was about his same age. And as you already know, war followed him, and eventually he ended up in East Anglia, where King Raidwald killed Aethelfrith after the great king lost his own son in that battle, and then he put Edwin on the throne of Northumbria. And following that moment, Edwin seems to have gone about getting some strike back, and we're told that he killed the king of the neighboring kingdom of Elmet, probably for poisoning Edwin's nephew. He also started dominating his neighboring kingdoms. For example, he controlled much of eastern Mercia. And being that he already held an absurdly powerful kingdom, and he had the support of other serious military powers in the Anglo-Saxon region at the time, East Anglia, for example, it wasn't like there was much that his neighbors could do to stop him. And where he couldn't directly challenge the power of a rival kingdom, such as the kingdom of Kent, who were powerful in their own right, and also had extremely powerful Frankish allies he found other ways to secure his position. And in the case of Kent, it was through marriage to Princess Aethelberg. And with the princess came the introduction of Christianity. Though, as you know, Edwin wasn't immediately convinced. And that marriage also brought more children. Aethelflaed, Aethelhoon, Wuskfreya, and Edwin. So at that point, things were looking up for Edwin. And with the exception of a vengeful streak which is somewhat understandable given his background, Edwin was playing the game pretty well. He was making allies, making friends, and didn't appear to be too bloodthirsty. And then Raidwald died, and Edwin became the new Bretwalda. And not everyone was pleased with that. There were kings who tried to take Edwin down, including the king of the West Saxons. And it's that failed assassination attempt that gives us a glimpse of another side of Edwin. So far, with the exception of King Cheritich of Elmet, Edwin's behaviors haven't shown us anything that would give us the impression that he was a bit of a tyrant. But here, with Wessex, 
we learn of a witch hunt and brutal reprisals that resulted in a dominated Wessex. It seems pretty clear that Edwin had a mean streak, and when threatened, he responded fiercely. And spending about half his life under threat, it makes you wonder if he was just forever looking for the next king who wanted him dead. And that might help explain some of his behaviors. But whatever the case, his entire life wasn't war and power. There were also domestic matters. For example, Edwin's Kentish wife still wanted him to convert, and his bishop eventually accomplished that feat. And here we see another aspect of Edwin that makes you think that he might have been a bit of a tyrant. Because he decided to force his new religion not just on his own people, but also on his sub-kings. And this was incredibly foolish, and it was a move that resulted in the death of at least one king, Raedwald's son, Erpwald of East Anglia, and also a fracturing of Edwin's power base. And what we're seeing here is that nothing happens in a vacuum. The behaviors of one person can radically affect the lives of other people in a completely different kingdom. And that fact couldn't be more clearly demonstrated than in what was occurring in the Midlands at exactly the same time. You see, it seems that pagan Mercia was starting to expand, possibly frustrated that Edwin was no longer married to Quenberg, but now was married to a Kentish princess, Ethelberg. Or maybe Mercia was simply hoping to seize opportunity and expand their own holdings. But regardless, one of the ways they were expanding was by acquiring dominion over the territories in the Severn Valley, those territories that were, until recently, under the control of Wessex. And Wessex was under the dominion of Edwin. Yet, we learn that rather than dealing with Mercia, Edwin was instead struggling against the kingdom of Gwyneth and its king, Cadwatlan, who was probably his own foster brother. The fight between these two kings ended in a siege that saw Capwatlin fleeing to Ireland and Gwyneth coming under Edwin's control. And it's unfortunate that the relationship between the two kingdoms came to this. It doesn't seem like it needed to happen. Edwin already had a lot of land. He was doing quite well. He had dominion over a large portion of territory, and Gwyneth might have been inclined to be an ally of his. He could have secured his own safety through other means. And also he could have secured the safety of his family. Because, at home, Edwin had a rather full household. He had an abundance of sons and daughters, despite the deaths of Aethelhoon and Aethelfrith, who both died right after their baptisms. By the way, did I tell you about this? Bede says that two of Edwin's kids died while still wearing their baptism clothes. And I have kind of two thoughts on this. First, what did you think was going to happen when you dunked a baby into a frigid river in the north? And second, I find this fact amazing because he still stayed Christian after this. Shouldn't that have been proof positive that he was better off with Woden? I mean, this is the ritual that binds you to the Christian God. And here, two of his kids died during it. Meanwhile, Woden doesn't require mandatory polar dipping for children. And as a bonus... He's the god of death, and he prefers death in battle, which should at least suggest that he wouldn't want him to die in a river. But Edwin stayed Christian. We're not told if his faith was shaken, but I know mine would have been. But anyway, despite losing those two children, Edwin still had plenty of other kids, and actually, his sons by Quenberg had even grown old enough to have were-odds of their own. And Osfrith even had a son, so Edwin was a grandfather. 
And yet, rather than spending time with his family, he was off fighting his foster brother. It's a shame, really. But the fact remains that Edwin now either directly held, or at least commanded the submission, of a massive swath of Britain. And it really looked like he wanted to control it all. He was even marching around with a tufa born ahead of him, which was a direct reference to the old Roman imperial power. However, looking at the expansion of Mercia, and looking at East Anglia breaking away from Northumbria, and not only that, but leaning towards another serious rival to Northumbrian power, Kent, we're starting to see hints that Edwin's hegemony was starting to collapse. He might continue to dominate the smaller kingdoms near Northumbria, but he was not as powerful as he assumed, and clearly not everyone was pleased with Edwin's attempts at establishing total control. So, let's get back to that saying, what goes around comes around. What does it tell us so far? Well, King Aethelfrith behaved like a tyrant and lived by the sword. And he died by it as well. And King Edwin, who had been such a sympathetic story, such a fantastic underdog story, had spent his early years being bullied and hunted, and then became a bully himself, not to mention a bit of a violent tyrant, even going so far as to attack and bully the kingdoms that gave him safety, one of which he married into, Mercia, another that put him on his throne, East Anglia, and still another that really went to bat for him and lost quite a lot in his defense, Gwyneth. It's a bit cheeky if you ask me. And now he was paying the price for his lack of diplomacy because East Anglia had abandoned him and was leaning towards Kent now. Mercia was expanding, and Gwyneth, well, after Edwin sent their king into exile, they had clearly had enough. Now, even if Edwin knew that Capwathlin intended to come back from Ireland and take vengeance, it's possible that Edwin thought it was no big deal because he was largely safe from Gwyneth. After all, Gwyneth was dominated. Also, it was a bit far away. There are buffers of Anglo-Saxon kingdoms between him and the Welsh kingdoms. And also, they were Christian. And that Christian thing is really key. Because with the exception of Kent, what other Anglo-Saxon kingdoms could Gwyneth ally with? All the other kingdoms in the east were pagan, with the exception of Edwin's Northumbria. So there's no way that any of them would want to side with a Christian kingdom. Further, they were Welsh and cultural tensions between the East and the West were a very real thing. So if the Welsh wanted to fight against him, they would be doing it alone, or at most, with other British kingdoms. And British fights against the Anglo-Saxons had not been going so well lately. So who cares about Capwathlin and his kingdom in North Wales? What can they do? Now, Mercia was a tougher nut to crack, and upon learning that they'd seized lands from the West Saxons, Edwin must have started to suspect that this new leader, Penda, was something special. However, Edwin's army was undefeated and powerful. He was the Bretwalda. And he had Christ on his side. So perhaps that gave him a little confidence when he looked to the south and saw this rising pagan power. And besides, the Pope was even on his side, which was more than the Scots could say, they were getting papal letters regarding how they should be celebrating Easter and how they needed to avoid Pelagianism. Do you remember that? Well, it's still alive and well in Scotland, apparently. But let's save that for a future Scottcast episode. Anyway, as far as kingdoms in Britain goes, 
the church was more than pleased with the Northumbrians. In fact, Edwin didn't know this, but the Pope even sent vestments for Bishop Paulinus. Vestments that would mark him as an archbishop. The Northumbrian church would no longer be subject to Kent, which was just what Edwin had wanted. It was going to happen. The vestments were on their way, along with a letter from the Pope praising Edwin for his zealous behavior. Now, like I said, he didn't know this was on his way, but it does look like from the Pope's letter that it was something that Edwin had specifically requested, so he might have been expecting it. But the point is that he was still quite powerful, and he also had the power of the church on his side. And so I wonder if he could have predicted what would follow. Now, as is the case with much from this period, we aren't given many details. But what we know is that Cadwallon returned from Ireland in 633. And when he arrived in Wales, he either came with Irish support or he quickly gathered warriors from his kingdom because he wasn't alone. Cadwallon had spent his time in Ireland well. Exile did not mean that he was in stasis, and much like Edwin had done during his years in exile, Cadwallon prepared and plotted his revenge. There are so many parallels in this story, so many moments of irony, and it makes me wonder if Edwin was able to see what he had become. He forced Cadwallon into exile, which was the same way he spent his youth. And he had done the same thing to the sons of Aethelfrith. Was he not concerned that they might follow in his footsteps? He had brought war to his former allies and was rapidly expanding his kingdom in ways that seemed rather familiar to that of the rule of Aethelfrith himself. And it was that method of rule that led to Aethelfrith dying at the hands of a southern king that should have been an ally, not an enemy. Did Edwin have the insight to look at his life and wonder if he was headed down the wrong path? Did he ever wonder if he was making the same mistakes of those who preceded him? Or was he so caught up with power and revenge that he just couldn't see anything else? Whatever the case, Cabwathlin had found support. And now, much like Edwin had all those years earlier, he found himself back in his homeland after far too long on the run. And... Much like Edwin, he had a formidable warband with him, as well as a battle-hardened ally. Penda of Mercia and his warbands had united with this Welsh king. The Mercian war leader was now acting as a junior partner in a military alliance. On first glance, this might seem strange. After all, they have some significant differences between them. And even if they could get past the cultural stuff, relying on the fact that Mercia was a bit more British than other Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, you still had the religious differences. This Penda fellow was an idolater. He worshipped false gods. Moreover, this Cabwathlin guy probably kept calling Penda's gods false, which is a bit of a speed bump for diplomacy. But they had something that unified them. Something that almost always cuts through cultural and religious roadblocks. A burning need for strike back. Sure, you can have your religious zealotry and ethnic bigotry, but that can go right out the window as soon as a common enemy is introduced. And Edwin, with his brutality and disloyalty, had certainly provided these two kingdoms with a common enemy. However, this alliance probably wasn't just for personal reasons. 
An alliance with Mercia also gave Cathwathlin a significant advantage that went beyond bringing Mercian warriors under his command. It allowed the Welsh forces to march unopposed right to Edwin's doorstep. With Penda's support, they had the ability to bring the fight directly to their enemy, despite the buffer of Anglian kingdoms between them. And as for Mercia, this was their chance to force their way onto the stage and pursue their own dreams of power. And if they needed to ally with these strange outsiders to accomplish that, so be it. In a single strike, they could become the dominant force in Britain and make a serious stab at ridding the island of this Christian god. Uniting was an obvious choice. And together, they would put a stop to this man and his clear desire for total hegemonic domination. And so, Edwin's foster brother teamed up with a leader from his first wife's kingdom. And they decided to take the chance that they would succeed where others had failed. And they left it up to fate and their war bands. And on October 12th, 633, or 634, at a plain that was called Haithfeld by the Anglo-Saxons and Megan by the Welsh, and is now called Hatfield's Chase, there the combined war bands of Capwatlin and Penda met the Northumbrian army, led by Edwin and his two grown sons, Osfrith and Aidfrith. Only a handful of miles away stood the battlefield where Edwin and Raidwald had defeated Aethelfrith and claimed the kingdom of Northumbria. And now, 17 years later, Edwin found himself at a battlefield and a battle that probably seemed rather familiar. Only now he stood with his sons, with the men of Northumbria under his command, much like his enemy had once done all those years ago. However, he was 48, and while many of his years were marked with hardship, he had proven time and time again that he was not a man to underestimate. And following this battle, he would be largely unchallenged. He could take control of Mercia in its entirety. His command of North Wales would be unchallenged, and he would dominate the vast majority of what would become England, in addition to portions of Wales. Edwin must have known that he was becoming more than a king of Northumbria. He was becoming a king of England. And if these kingdoms would not submit to him and his church, he would persuade them at spear and sword point. He would make sure that his line and his rule was safe. If he unified the Midlands with Northumbria, he could extend his hold to the entire island. And wasn't that what his new god promised? Victory riches, power. Surely this god was on his side, as he was bringing his word to the extremities of the earth, just as the pope had commanded. Yeah, Christ must grant him victory. But my god, there were a lot of men lined up against him. And then they advanced. The fighting that followed was brutal, bitter, and personal. Everyone had an axe to grind in this battle. Even the men of the war bands were fighting for something personal. The Welshmen had their kingdom conquered by this Northumbrian king. The Mercians had long been dominated by him. Cabwatlin had been betrayed by him. And as for Edwin and his sons, they were fighting for their lives. He and his army must have been all too aware that they had to stop this invasion, no matter the cost. 
and an invading army is exactly what Capwafflin had brought. Men locked together, shields broke, axes and spears splintered, swords clashed. This was gang warfare between large bands of extremely well-trained, ruthless, and experienced warriors. And unlike some battles, where there was a sense of decorum and spiritual nature to the combat, from the story that were told by Bede, this was a slaughter. Brave Northumbrians, veterans of many battles, were falling all around the Northern King. And then, in the chaos of the melee, Edwin experienced the horror that Raidwald had endured all those years ago, as his son, Osfrith, was cut down right in front of him. The forces of Cadwathlin and Penda were simply too great for the Northern King to withstand, and with one of his war leaders already lying dead on the ground, his once invincible army now began to look all too human, all too mortal. And then an unnamed warrior saw his chance and succeeded where Aethelfrith had failed. And Edwin of Northumbria, the vagabond prince turned Bretwalda and tyrant, fell dead at Hatfield's chase. Aedfrith, Edwin's other son, saw where the battle was headed. He had already lost his brother and his father, and it seems that he had no desire to add his name to the list of nobles killed. So he surrendered, though not to this terrifying Welsh king, but instead to the Mercian who fought with him, Penda. Perhaps he thought that this man would grant him some degree of mercy, if that's the case, he had probably not heard of Penda's growing reputation. Meanwhile, the remainder of Edwin's once great army, those who were not lying dead on the field, were scattered. The Northumbrian army was destroyed. Cadwathlin had his revenge. Or at least, you would be forgiven if you thought Cadwathlin had his revenge. But after all the atrocities of Aethelfrith and the invasion of Edwin... The men of Gwyneth had taken as much as they could handle from Northumbria. It was time to break the back of this kingdom that had a nasty habit of being ruled by bloodthirsty and honorless men, and had an even worse habit of making war upon the northern Welsh. And word spread quickly through the kingdom that the Welsh were coming, and Northumbria fell into chaos. Bishop Paulinus abandoned any chance of becoming archbishop, and he was so incredibly close. But preservation must take precedence, and so he grabbed Queen Aethelberg and fled to Kent by sea. And King Aedbald of Kent, Aethelberg's own brother, received them well. And it seems that Paulinus wasn't alone in this plan, because there they met Bassus, one of Edwin's thanes, who brought Edwin's remaining children and even his grandchild along with a great deal of Northumbrian treasure, to the southern kingdom. But don't forget how hated Edwin was by the end. If you had forgotten, Queen Aethelberg clearly hadn't. While her brother's kingdom might be safe for her, Edwin's line was still in significant danger, even from her own kin. So fearing for the safety of the two defenseless infant boys, Iffy and Wusk Freya, she sent them overseas to the Frankish court of King Dagobert I. Iffy, by the way, is one of the all-time great names. But despite their Frankish protection, both boys died soon thereafter. And as for the other exiled child of Edwin, Ainflaed, 
She stayed in Kent due to the fact that she was in significantly less danger due to the sexist nature of Anglo-Saxon power structures at the time. Essentially, she wasn't seen as a viable claimant to the throne, so why bother? Meanwhile, in Northumbria, life was horrific. Bede tells us that Capwathlin exacted a terrible revenge upon the Anglo-Saxon kingdom, sparing no one and committing many to death by torture. Now, Bede is hardly an unbiased source, and his claims of basically attempted genocide strike me as hyperbole. It is entirely possible that Capwathlin's response was swift and terrible, just not to the extent that Bede claims it was. Don't forget that he often drew from oral sources in Northumbria and other English kingdoms. So, those sources would have hardly been unbiased when discussing a Welsh king, especially when discussing the only British king to have overthrown an Anglo-Saxon king. Cadwathlin did not make many friends in the East after he did that. But his victory was a great one for the British, and Cadwathlin very well might have pressed his advantage considering the fact that it seemed like the tide was finally turning against these barbarian Anglo-Saxons. And one thing that made Capwathlin's advance easier was the fact that Deira and Bernicia, though they had once been unified into Northumbria under Aethelfrith and Edwin, had once again split into two separate kingdoms, with Osric, the son of Aethelric, the same Aethelric that was killed by Aethelfrith, while Osric went and claimed his father's throne and ruled Deira. And Ainfrith, the exiled son of Aethelfrith, returned from Dalriada and decided that he was going to rule Bernicia, even though Capwathlin had sort of just taken it in war. At least Osric was already in Deira, and was basically organizing the resistance. But Ainfrith? Unless Kirby's right, and he had some sort of prearranged agreement with Capwathlin, there's no explanation for this move beyond the fact that Ainfrith was an incredible opportunist, and also had a massive pair on him. Seriously, who decides to crown themselves in the middle of a war-torn kingdom that has an active invading army running around kicking ass left and right? Ainfrith, apparently. He just marched in and declared himself king. And here's how ballsy this guy was. He took 12 warriors with him and went to meet with Cadwathlin to discuss a peace treaty. You know, like a king would. And Cadwathlin knew exactly how to deal with this descendant of Ida, who claimed that he could negotiate peace for a kingdom that he didn't even hold. He had him killed. You know, like a king would. And then he went back to fighting Osric and his Deiran warbands. But little did Cadwathlin know that he really messed with the wrong family. They might die a lot, and oh my god does the line of Ida die a lot but they were also rather effective warriors. Well, right up until they die. And as you probably guessed, far away, Ainfrith's brother, Oswald, prepared for vengeance. <laughs>